What you're about to hear is a lecture that René Girard gave in 1993 at the Center for International Security and Arms Control at Stanford University. The theme of the lecture is revenge. The Cornerstone Forum is pleased to be able to make Professor Girard's remarks available. Thank you for your interest in these themes and in the work of the Cornerstone Forum in bringing them to the attention of a wider contemporary audience. Rene Girard. I'm going to talk about revenge from the point of view of anthropological theory. I think that in anthropology, as in other, the other social sciences, the simplest questions are the most uh, difficult to ask, you know, and beginners do not dare ask them for fear of sounding ignorant. Mm -hmm. And they are ignorant, of course, but what they do not realize is that these questions have no answer, you know. They feel that these questions have been answered long ago and that there is some kind of standard answer which uh, everybody agrees upon. And uh, it's never the case in the social sciences. And maybe it's unfair, but I would say specialist is a man who asks very complicated questions and give complicated answers, but leaves the fundamental questions safely aside, you know, because they seem to lead nowhere and they have no practical consequences. So there are very few people who uh, ask them and probably most of the people who ask them run into trouble and do not get anywhere. But uh, if there is a question in anthropology, I feel, um, which can be answered and which is absolutely fundamental. It's my pet belief, and I may be wrong, of course. And I think it's a question of uh, reciprocity. You know, the question by question of reciprocity, I mean, why is there reciprocity in human affairs? Why is there so much uh, reciprocity? Here in this room, for instance, we all have to sit the same way and uh, eat our sandwich the, in the same fashion. If some of us, instead of turning toward the center of the table, turn the other way, you know, and face the windows, we wouldn't know what to think. We'd be terribly embarrassed. We have to do absolutely the, the same thing. Reciprocity really uh, means back and forth, back and forth exchange. And the origin of the word in Latin, I think significantly, has nothing to do with human relations. It's probably related to the ebb and flow of tides, you know. Reciprocus, there is re, which means, would mean back and pro, forward. But it's a back and forth motion. And in English, you know, uh, it still has that uh, meaning. And in anthropology, of course, uh, reciprocity, interchange is tremendously important. And anthropologists have been talking about it a great deal uh, in the last uh, 100 years, you know. People like Marcel Mauss, uh, the essay on, on the gift is, is really a textbook about uh, reciprocity in, uh, in human affairs. And uh, much of 20th century anthropology is uh, after that pattern, looking for uh, patterns of reciprocity exchange, you know, as the matrimonial exchange, economic exchange, everything in society is um, 
is good reciprocity. Because uh, in anthropology, you have to, in, in questions of reciprocity, you can say good and bad. You know, when we speak about political science, every time we say something is good, something is bad, we are accused of being simplistic and uh, simplifying the problem. But uh, in social relations, reciprocity is either good or bad because you interpret it that way. If someone says good morning to you, you will answer with something very similar. You'll say good morning to maybe you'll say have a good day. But if you answer, mind your own business, you know, <laughs> here again it would uh, seem very strange. Therefore, you have to do exactly the same thing. And this is good reciprocity. What we call courtesy is good reciprocity. Economic exchange is good reciprocity because everybody agrees that a certain amount of goods must be exchanged either for other goods or for money, uh, the general sign of exchange. But I use the word reciprocity because many anthropologists, it's not the case with most, by the way, do not want to see that their reciprocity can be bad. If I say, mind your own business, when uh, you say good morning, probably you're going to retaliate. At first, you will try not to retaliate, you know, and you will be extra nice in order to invite the resumption of good reciprocity. You'll be very insistent on being extra nice, which may be a beginning of bad reciprocity. But if you do not succeed, you will fall silent to begin with, and, and your silence will be interpreted by the other party as uh, bad reciprocity. Therefore, if good reciprocity is interrupted or somehow, it it shifts very easily to bad reciprocity. But there is still reciprocal exchange, which is, I think, what anthropology doesn't see enough. If I uh, uh, extend my hand to you, you would extend it, and so forth. If I refuse to extend it, you will refuse to extend it too. Therefore, you still do the same thing I do. So in order to account for reciprocity, which is a neutral term, which includes bad as well as good reciprocity, there is only one way, which is my pet subject too, which is imitation. You know, the common denominator of good and bad reciprocity is that uh, we have to imitate each other. And we keep imitating each other, even in disagreement and uh, conflict, which is the thing which uh, usually is not seen. You see, because we would like to assume that good reciprocity comes first. It's a normal tendency, you know, in our um, rationalistic, um, benevolent uh, universe to assume that good reciprocity is first. And in a way, the man par excellence, the first great anthropologist to assume that reciprocity, good reciprocity is first, is Rousseau. You know, in opposition to Hobbes, of course. Hobbes, I think, is very great with all, and extremely disliked still today. Like, because what he assumes is that uh, if things are left to themselves, bad reciprocity will appear and will dominate good reciprocity. That, in a certain sense, bad reciprocity is first, you know. And uh, I personally think that Hobbes is right. 
and that uh, the observation even of uh, you know human behavior in daily life uh, shows it because if you look at uh, human culture we discover thanks to people like Moss that there is a lot of good reciprocity economic exchange matrimonial exchange and so forth but why do we have to discover it because it's not readily visible especially in archaic societies there would be no society at all if there were not a lot of good reciprocity sexual exchange raising of children and so forth is good reciprocity good reciprocity is a staple of life and there would be no society without it i'm not uh, uh, denying that but there is a tendency in uh, human society to hide in human culture to hide the reciprocity as if human societies were scared of it and i think they are scared of it and i think they are scared of it because too much visible reciprocity is always moving toward bad reciprocity <coughs> uh for instance if you look at the systems of kinship you know subgroup a gives its women to subgroup b which gives its women to subgroup c which gives its women maybe to d f and so forth and then ultimately it will come back to a but what is often avoided or if it is present it is uh, made a little bit invisible in other ways what is often avoided is group a is giving its women to b and group b is returning immediately its women to a in the the exchange would be too visibly reciprocal and therefore would be bad and in, it seems very strange you know because we don't have any matrimonial exchange but if we think of gift giving in our world we understand immediately what it means for instance if someone gives me a very expensive fountain pen you know and has never given me anything before sooner or later i'm expected to return that gift or that person will think that there is something wrong with me or you know that i'm rejecting their advances and so forth and therefore after a while they will resent me but if i do the very reverse you know if after receiving that fountain pen the next day i return not exactly the same fountain pen which would be direct rejection but maybe a different color but it would be the same brand you know the same price the same value exactly the same fountain pen except for one diacritical sign that shows i'm returning a gift and not simply giving back the original gift i am in good reciprocity but it will be interpreted as bad reciprocity it will be in interpreted as either this man doesn't know how people should behave or he's insulting me you see what i mean why because the reciprocity will be too accurate too visible too immediate and immediate reciprocity is the same thing you know as no reciprocity as bad reciprocity is the beginning of it or in a in a farmers market in the old days you know if you buy some pigs from some man and you know him he doesn't want you to pay him immediately he said let's go have a drink and so forth and we talk and everybody pays his own drink and so forth then after a while the exchange will be completed but if you completed the exchange too fast and if it were tit for tat 
it will begin to sound like revenge, you know, and it will be avoided. It's not true of all cultures, you see what I mean? And for business, it's certainly not true here. I mean, you must give money in advance. <laughs> so, you know, there's no... <laughs> but in functional, archaic or traditional societies, you try to make the reciprocity invisible. Therefore, I think it's a sign that bad reciprocity always threatens, and that fundamentally, I would even go further, I would say bad reciprocity comes first. Bad reciprocity is the real reciprocity in the sense that it's mimetic and imitative. And there is one word for revenge in English, which we do not have in French, which shows it very much. It's the word retaliation. retaliation. In retaliation, there is a Latin word, talis, which means such, of such a nature. Retaliation means you reply in kind. In other words, you're not, if someone does a dirty trick to you, you don't want to do any dirty trick to them. Vengeance is an art, you know. It must be exactly, it's a mimetic art, because classical art, traditional art, is mimetic, it's imitation. And uh, good vengeance is the same dirty trick, exactly. Maybe with a little more to show that you already understood what it's all about. So this little more means that as soon as you get into that game of bad reciprocity, there is a tendency to escalation. Therefore, human relations are always good or bad reciprocity, and they always have an eschatological horizon, I would say. They move either toward absolute harmony, you know, total peace, or total war warfare. Vengeance, is that right? That's why human relations are such a delicate thing, you see? And we don't like totally neutral anonymous relation like we have so many of in uh, contemporary society. If you buy a newspaper from a newsstand in a big city, you have a neutral relationship, but usually you'll smile or you'll say something about the weather or something in order to personalize the relationship. <coughs> and this neutral relation, which could go either way, you know, and very often becomes antagonistic or irritated in a big city, you want to push it to the, the side uh, of good reciprocity. That's why I think in human relations, reciprocity is inescapable of one kind or another, which really means, if it is true, that, uh, that people always uh, imitate each other, you know. That's why there is always the idea of doubling, of repeating, of duplicating in all the words about uh, revenge in English, you know, revenge, of course, but uh, requital, reprisals. Reprisals is really a military term. It's used first, if another nation did something bad to you, you will, um, you will take some of their goods or some of their subjects and keep them as uh, hostages. But uh, it's the same idea exactly as uh, retaliation. It's the idea of doing the same, of demanding exactly the same thing, which is, uh, which is the, the main tendency of uh, revenge, and which must, be not, must not be there in gift-giving, or must not be visible. That's why, you see what I mean? 
In revenge, you try to make it as visible as possible. You're teaching him then a lesson. Whereas in gift giving, you have the same. If you're returning that gift I was talking about, it will be substantially the same. Or maybe because if you want to be nice. But at the same time, you must hide that sameness. If you must hide that sameness, is that in culture, good reciprocity is absolutely necessary, I repeat, but must be hidden behind differences, what we call differences, um, because if it were too visible, it would tend toward um, bad reciprocity and revenge. Here, when I'm talking this way, I'm talking very differently from uh, most contemporary schools of anthropology who take differences most seriously and take similarities and identities as non-existent, you know. No possible knowledge of other cultures because uh, they're all different from each other. And you cannot talk about them unless you are part of them. This may be true to a certain extent, and it's even certainly true for certain very important aspects of culture. But for human relations, I don't think it's true. I think there is a basis of human relations behind all culture, which is fundamentally the same in all culture. And if you look at our culture carefully, you will see that uh, the uh, you will find the same principles ultimately uh, behind our culture and uh, behind the archaic ones at the level of elementary uh, human relations. Modern anthropology, therefore, of the most kind, analyzes exchange and finds reciprocity behind the appearance of uh, no reciprocity. And you have to analyze it in order to get back to it. But therefore, they emphasize only good reciprocity. And in our time, they emphasize it more and more. And they emphasize it very often for <coughs> ideological reason, you know, because we have to idealize uh, non-Western cultures today. We have to say, for instance, that there must be no revenge in them. If you read uh, the historian of uh, the West in 19th century America, Parkman, there was a lot of revenge in uh, Indian culture at that time, but today you must not uh, say it anymore. Therefore, we emphasize the positive very much when we are discussing other culture, and we keep revenge in a way for uh, ourselves. In my books, I try to show that uh, archaic institutions and in connection with conflict are unintelligible unless you put bad reciprocity first. I think that bad reciprocity is first not because there is necessarily a tremendous amount in uh, all cultures, and especially archaic cultures, but because whenever it occurs, it makes community life impossible. Therefore, it's very important. As long as you have uh, good reciprocity, in whatever form, however disguised, you don't have to worry about it. As soon as you have bad reciprocity, even if it happens only once every 100 years, you have to worry a lot about it 
because it will not go back by itself to good reciprocity. When the mechanism of culture goes wrong, you know, uh, it is very hard to, uh, to fix, and we don't even know how uh, it gets fixed. You know, and some French anthropologists have criticized my view, trying to show that uh, revenge, as we find it in primitive communities, institutionalized in a way, always appears not as revenge, really, but as a system of exchange. In other words, in our society, we have a judicial system. Revenge, beyond a certain point, when it reaches violence, is outlawed, and uh, the police and the judicial system deal with it. In a society which has no judicial system, there cannot be such a thing. Therefore, the quote-unquote punishment of violence is in the hands of the aggrieved party, of the people who suffer from it. Therefore, the punishment of violence is exactly the same as revenge. And since it is the same, cannot be distinguished from the original act. Therefore, there is a contradiction. There is a contradiction in revenge. As soon as revenge moves into a community, the whole cultural system is threatened. You only have to think of it. Revenge, violence inside a community, between people who belong to the same fundamental group, who needs to get along together for the society to work. Violence is so bad that the only possible punishment for it is the same violence. If you kill my brother, I'm going to kill you. Violence is at the same time the most prohibited action, and the revenge, which is the same, is the most stringent obligation for all people. So if you see these two things together, you understand you have a contradiction that cannot be solved when violence breaks out that therefore you have a fundamental problem. In order to see that it is true, that that contradiction cannot be solved, all you have to do is to read Greek tragedy. You know, Greek tragedy, uh, the Oesteia, for instance, the first uh, two plays, is nothing but revenge. And the people who are avenging the victim, talk about revenge in terms of the most stringent obligation, something which the gods demand, which must be performed. And the people who are the victims of this revenge talk about it, of course, as the worst possible crime, <clears throat> therefore, which will lead to more revenge and more violence. That's why, ultimately, in an archaic society, there is, I think, in a society without a judicial system, there is a threat of endless revenge. The fact that that endless revenge exists is what we call the blood feud. We could say that the Oresteia is the story of a blood feud. And in order to get rid of the blood feud in the humanities, ultimately we shift to foreign war. We all get together against a foreign enemy.
That's what the Fury says, you know, finished with this blood spilling inside the community. But now we have an excellent enemy outside, and we're going to use these enemies to the fore. And this is the beginning of the great period uh, of Greece. And we know that in the century before, there was a lot of private uh, uh, revenge in Greece. So probably Aeschylus is talking about the fundamental uh, change in uh, Greek society, the moment where uh, the first real tribunals appeared and uh, vengeance became a, uh, you know, an object, uh, uh, a delinquency, something that, uh, for which you had to answer to the state and no longer to your family. You see what I mean? And of course, the power of the state is that very often it will punish this violence with the same amount of violence. Therefore, it will not do away with revenge, but it will make it possible for everybody to call it punishment and just punishment because the state is so powerful and the state is the representative of the entire community instead of a family. Therefore, it has a transcendence which is more powerful than the transcendence of the primitive gods in the sense that whatever punishment it deals to the delinquents will be the final word of vengeance. In other words, if uh, your brother has killed someone else because someone else had killed someone else and so forth, when your brother is condemned by the state, you feel like committing vengeance against the state, but you cannot do it because it's just uh, the state is too big. And when the judicial system works, it stops revenge dead in its track. Therefore, it is infinitely powerful, so powerful, I think that in our world we do not perceive the threat of revenge as uh, a possibility. Although in our time, you know, in many respects, we, we have seen that uh, it can be a real possibility if we think of what happened, for instance, in Lebanon not too many years ago, if we think of what may be happening now in Yugoslavia, we may change our view. We may be entering a period in which the institutions which dealt with revenge, the state and the judicial system, are not as uh, unquestionable as they used to be. And this is probably, may well be, one of the, the ultimate meanings of our current cultural crisis. As soon as there is disagreement about these things, of course, everything enters into uh, a great turmoil. But anthropologists who view, tend to do away with revenge, and uh, a few years ago there was a group of French anthropologists who criticized my view of uh, uh, revenge, saying that this fear of revenge I'm talking about is obviously unfounded, because in primitive society, when you see, you meet revenge only as a system of exchange. You meet revenge when uh, the vengeance is uh, hemmed in by all sorts of precautions or compensations or measures which are not judicial because the parties in conflict are alone but it's really the elders of the society, the society which tries to contain that conflict 
by setting up a system of exchange. It will not be necessary eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but it will be an eye for a cow and a tooth for a pig. All archaic societies have uh, such systems, you know, and they often work very well. They often work better than a judicial system which is um, in trouble like ours. I've never said, because these people say that I really accuse primitive society of being, you know, um, overwhelmed with revenge and vengeance. I do not say that at all. I preventative measures in the face of revenge can be just as powerful as our own extremely powerful curative medicine, which is the judicial system, which is uh, which was beheading the culprits, you know, or jailing them, and so forth. Um, so the, these people tend to say, if the vengeance in a primitive society appears only as a system of exchange, you know, something, someone does something bad, and immediately economic exchange follows, or an exchange of money. So they tend to reduce exchange to its positive side, to, its, uh, to what I call uh, good reciprocity. And there is a paradox, of course, in reducing even revenge, which is extreme bad reciprocity, to good reciprocity. And I would say this is not a good interpretation of Marcel Mauss' essay on the gift. Because if you go back to Marcel Mauss, which uh, uh, can be done very easily, you will see that he does almost the reverse, you know. He sees society as a bunch of systems of exchange which are positive, which work very well, even though the reciprocity, the good reciprocity is hidden. But he also realizes that in all archaic societies, together with good economic exchange, there is always a little bit of conflict which is there, which is present sometime in the form of ritual conflict or sometime in the form of sacrifice. And, and I'm going to give you ex an example. You know, the Tsimshian Indians, for instance. When there was a princely wedding, which is good exchange between two goats, um, you acquire a wife from the other goat, and you give lots of things in return. It's good and positive exchange. But usually the marriage ceremony includes a fight between people of the two groups, or sometimes they're slaves, prisoners and so forth. And if one of these slaves dies, it's a good sign for the future wedding. If you start looking, working on exchange, you will see that most forms of exchange in archaic society have their dark side, which very often is ritualized to such an extent that it's only it's survival, you know, that it means really nothing, like an exchange of uh, rapid blows, which will never lead to anything wrong. Anyway, the idea of conflict is almost always present behind positive exchange. Therefore, I would tend to reverse 
you know, the objection which is made to me. And I think this objection does not take into account the fundamental and simple question of why is there so much reciprocity in human affairs, you know? And this question is because people imitate each other. And uh, what we do not see is why should mutual imitation so often result in conflict, you know, turn to conflict, which is really a very simple thing, but which is not part of our uh, culture for some reason. If people imitate each other in everything, as I have said, in all behaviors, obviously they imitate each other's desires too, you know. They desire the same thing. They do not desire the same thing only for economic reasons, because um, some goods are scarce, therefore are very much in demand. You know, they desire the same thing just because they desire the same thing. Because when someone starts desiring something, this something immediately becomes more desirable in the eyes of everybody else. Here again, it seems very strange, but it's not strange at all because it's the number one principle of our financial speculation of what we call the stock market. Speculating on a stock is buying the stuff because you think that other people desire it. Other people desire it not because it's desirable, but because these other people think the same way I do, that everybody is going to buy it. That is a reason why there can be speculative problems, because there may come a moment when a principle of reality reappears behind all this imitation, and the uh, stock will crash. But we had a marvelous way to ritualize conflicts of imitation, or to turn them into productive means of uh, enterprise, like financing business through uh, the stock market. I think a primitive society does not really have the, the same means. But somehow, you know, bad reciprocity, which must always appear, and when it appears, it has a tendency to devour the good one, to reduce everything to itself. We know very well ourselves that when good relations get worse in a group, they are very hard to fix up, you know. They are very hard to improve. And uh, bad reciprocity, in my view, which is the result of that uh, mimetic uh, desire and mimetic rivalry, um, must be behind human culture in some way. There must be a way through which this type of conflict is digested you know, and transformed again in uh, good reciprocity. Because if you look at uh, the way society works, you see that everything seems to be moving in the direction of uh, bad uh, reciprocity. I think one can discover the way in which uh, such uh, mimetic crisis ultimately become resolved. I think in order to discover it, one has to go to the religious system of uh, archaic societies, and in particular to the system of sacrifice, to the idea of uh, a sacrificial victim, which is the victim of the whole world. 
a sacrificial victim against which all the tensions of that group become resolved. I think that archaic societies are always operating on the background of sacrifice. And that is why the positive aspects of exchange or the um, economic exchange, matrimonial exchange, and so forth, always has a sacrificial background. And in the Tsimshian wedding that I was talking about, in a way, it's the sacrificial aspect which appears as a battle between the two groups. It's particularly interesting because it brings you back to what must have happened before exchange of women was established. And it is especially interesting because here you have an Indian society with no literature, no culture. But, in, but if you look at the symbolism, it is exactly the same as everything we know about uh, ancient culture, ancient uh, marriage. We know that all Greek culture, as well as Roman culture, is built in a way around the problem of, uh, uh, of a conflict in the exchange of women, the Sabine women's for the Romans and the Trojan wars for the Greeks. I think that if you look at the Trojan War, if you bring together with the Simshian wedding, you can see that the same principles ultimately are operative. That behind the good exchange, there must be a bad, a period of revenge, a period of uh, bad reciprocity, a war which has been absorbed, assimilated, turned into sacrifice, and upon which the positive system is established. A positive system which is always threatened, of course, with the possibility of falling back into revenge. And you can imagine circular patterns of this time. Babak? Can we say that uh, the circle of revenge is kind of a sacrificial crisis? Yes. How would one break the circle of revenge? Well, I really think that the circle of revenge is broken when uh, through the mimetic uh, power of uh, the crisis itself, a tendency to a tendency of all tensions to snowball on a single victim occurs the first time spontaneously. Scapegoating in the spontaneous sense. Generative scapegoating, as Bob says. Generative scapegoating is, uh, in my view, the basis of human culture in the sense that uh, uh, in the sense that you believe it that the group believes it. In other words, the group sees the victim as all-powerful for evil, really responsible for the crisis. Oedipus has really committed parasite and incest and caused the plague. And if they do believe that, and if they can transfer their hostilities to that victim, project their hostilities to that victim, they will be cured. And therefore, the cure will make that same victim appear not only as very bad, but as very good, as all-powerful for good as well as evil, as evil, which is the primitive God, by contrast with the Judaic and Christian God, which is uh, less and less violent and more and more good in a world where uh, revenge is regarded as bad in all its forms. 
you know, the problem in uh, conflict is when to uh, intervene, you see. And uh, I think it is the same problem as in archaic communities or in ancient communities in Homer, for instance, of when to provide the right sacrificial victims, which is the job of Ulysses in uh, the Greek epic. Ulysses is a forerunner of all political scientists, but at the same time, they're bad conscience because what he works with is mostly sacrificial victims. Um, uh, and uh, as long as uh, things have not gone too far, in other words, as the uh, mutual excitement, the mutual bad imitation has not reached a certain threshold, uh, the, the, the crisis can be already avoided. And uh, the point of intervention is a very delicate one. But of course, one cannot make rules, you see. And it's really because one cannot make rules that there is a history, that we never know what's going to happen. What I've been saying, too, is really directly applicable only to archaic societies. By this, I mean something very uh, precise. I mean societies which do not have a judicial system in our sense, therefore cannot intervene directly. And of course, we we know that the role of the elders through today in many uh, archaic societies is to intervene at the right time to prevent uh, violent conflict from but Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. My question is really, what does happen when it doesn't work at all? Is it true that it doesn't work at all? Was Hobbes right <clears throat> to think that in a way, in the back of everything, uh, there is uh, such a thing, at least, uh, which weighs upon us, at least psychically, which would be the war of all against all, you see, because Hobbes has the definitive formula for that. And I think that Hobbes, at least symbolically, as a point. Today, we've gone to the opposite extreme. We look at our society with such contempt, and we force ourselves to be so respectful of societies which no longer exist anyway, that it is some kind of joke. And I think we should try to strike a balance between the two, which we don't seem to be able to, because it's a very hot subject. It's a political subject. You have to distinguish several things, you know. First, you have to go to someone like Nietzsche. Someone like Nietzsche, he saw the tremendous importance of revenge in human society, probably more than anyone else. And he also saw that we are the only society that prohibits revenge, period, sees revenge in a way as the main moral evil. As a result, he says, we have a lot of interiorized revenge. And uh, in a way, Nietzsche suggests an interpretation of psychopathological symptoms in terms of interiorized revenge. I personally believe that it's the greatest interpretation, that we have indeed a lot of interiorized revenge because we have no externalized revenge. And that tension is especially true for a Latin <laughs> 20, 30 years ago, you know, moving to a society where sentiments of hostilities are 
never expressed, like the American society or Protestant societies, I would say. And you felt that the internalized revenge was very uh, uh, powerful, that it was a more powerful thing in a way than all Freudian uh, things. So there is internalized revenge. So Nietzsche said, better a little real revenge than ressentiment. You know, he used the French word, in other words, with re in front of it, resentment, to talk about internalized revenge. And it's false. Nothing is more outmoded than Nietzsche, because a little more open revenge is better than interiorized revenge. Cannot be true in a world with nuclear weapons and that sort of thing. Nietzsche pays absolutely no attention to that, and the Nietzscheans, you know, we are in a world where the possibility of certain forms of revenge is totally out. The Nietzscheans do not look at it. It's a question of life and death, because we are back, in a way, to the primitive community, which is composed maybe of 50 people who all need each other to survive, mm. and if revenge breaks into that group, it's as if a nuclear war had started among them. They, they are sure to be destroyed. That's why I think the problem of revenge is so important for archaic societies, and in some ways similar to what it is in the world of dissuasion, you know, a world in which nuclear weapons are all of them, because it shrinks the earth to the proportions of a uh, small primitive society. Therefore, in our society, you know, there is a lot of internalized revenge, and there is a lot of hat explicit revenge, you know, which may be, <clears throat> for instance, it's very interesting to me, the difference between, when Americans go to France, you know, they are appalled the way French people treat them, and they comfort themselves by saying, oh, they treat each other the same way, which is true, you know, <laughs> especially in Paris, they are very impolite. They will, if you talk to them for five minutes, they will break down, and they will be, they will be nice. Or if you go to the same store three times, they will change. Anyway, there is a lot of surface irritation, you know, in everything, in driving, in sidewalk, uh, and so on. But at the same time, they don't kill each other the way Americans do. Who knows if these two things <laughs> are not related? You see what I mean? In America, people are perfectly courteous and so forth until they get a gun and you <laughs> shoot. <laughs> so, are these two things related? They might be. Is there an economy of violence? You see what I mean? Even in our society? Who knows? I, I do not say that what I said is the truth, but I say it's a possible subject of investigation, you know, for contemporary anthropology. Many of the aspects that seems to me that you've brought up is, are, are quintessentially, stereotypically masculine in orientation. That when there were controversies in, 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 with different groups in a couple of villages that I worked in, uh, the women seemed to be able to transcend this. In other words, they, they, they served as, in fact, with quite a different orientation to reduce the revenge factor even though that they're, historically they were objects of exchange in many ways. So it seems to me that you, we should add that in, and perhaps you have, and I'd like to yeah. hear your comments on it. Well, I have. I have in my books, you know. And uh, some feminists have understood, and some have completely misinterpreted it, or, uh, probably, or some even seem to fear 
that uh, it is insulting women to say that they do not practice revenge as vigorously as uh, men, <laughs> which I find someone disconcerting. You see what I mean? On the other hand, you have to look at culture. You, you, you see, the role of women in, uh, in Greek culture is a very interesting problem because you have plays like the Bacchae in which the violence seems to be primarily feminine. The women get out of the town and then they are on a rampage on Mount Citeron. You see what I mean? And they kill everything. I think there is a reversal of, of the sexes which takes place there, which in reality we are talking about men, that there is a, uh, that it's not true, in other words, and that you can see certain signs in the text. But there is a tendency for the men either to blame revenge on women, because very often women are the pretext or the object of revenge in sexual matters, or to blame too little revenge on women. And this you have in the Seven Against Thieves, where Etiochus, when he defends the community, has a great speech against women as defeatists in the war. You see what I mean? And as destroying the bravery of the fighters. And of course, Aristophanes, you know, on the women. And so what the, the, the question is undoubtedly present in uh, Greek culture. In archaic society, too, I think even the physical shape. In South America, the Boroboro villages, you know, uh, they are circular. And the women are not exchanged since they are always in the houses at the edge. It's really the men who exchange each other, you know, who move about, and they always go through the central house of the village, which is the house where you of war, religion, and adornment, physical adornment. They are the ones who wear the plumes and everything. And the women are really like bystanders in a street brawl. You know, who look from the outside, look on, and have nothing to do with it. Which I think is the greatest place of women in culture that you can uh, give, you see. But I think there the physical shape reflects that. And the fact that they do not take part in the cultural game, you know, at all. I'm a realist, you see what I mean? I believe there are cultural systems through which we accede to reality. And we may accede to all sorts of nonsense. We may create distinctions which are not true. You see what I mean? And we do, of course, even in uh, modern culture. But fundamentally, we accede to all sorts of truth, even in the most archaic culture. Lévi-Strauss says, which I think is one of the greatest things that he said, in opposition to totally idealistic view of culture, is if there were not a lot of truth of things that work in all cultures, they would disappear instantly. People would not survive, you know? And I agree with that. If you're not in touch with reality somehow, the, the system would disappear. In archaic societies, sacrificial system is preventing revenge, but is also tremendously aware of revenge as a threat. It tends to transcendentalize that revenge and to say the God will do this. But at the same time, people know that the God, gods act through men and that men will become perverse and vicious 
if the gods are men. That's what it really uh, means, and people are fully aware of that. And as for revenge in the international system, no doubt in traditional war it played a tremendous role when political power was primarily dynastic. And in dynastic power, there are quarrels which are like blood feud, you know, and go on forever. I think people don't really understand fully the reason why the French was remained stuck against the Austrians, against the Habsburg monarchy for so long, when in reality the real threat was coming from Russia. I think it was an old culture in which uh, the relationship with the Habsburg monarchy had become internalized by the population. Same between the English and the French, popular songs, you know, and uh, all sorts of things. That therefore in dynastic politics, uh, uh, revenge is a very uh, important thing. And that nationalism really is the internalizing of that tradition, which uh, probably reached its maximum point in Western Europe when uh, in early democracies, which still had the symbolic system of the old monarchies, but at the same time had compulsory uh, conscription, military service, and so on. Therefore, they had the ills of both systems. And there was yet no popular reaction against the system of revenge, which was still, where the people still identified to the Franco-English quarrel, for instance, going back to the Middle Ages, which today I think they are no longer do, at least in Western Europe. But maybe they still do in the East, and let's hope that they won't. But I was thinking about Rousseau. You know, Rousseau, in the second discourse on inequality, is extremely smart. He realizes how difficult it is to postulate good reciprocity initially. So he decided that at the beginning, when there was man of nature, you know, natural man, in the Rousseau sense, was still good, people were very far apart from each other. (laughs) And they practically never... Uh, encountered each other, you know. Very few people take that into account in Rousseau, which shows that uh, he has inklings, you know, of how easily, and of course he knew his life is a good example of how easily bad relations can occur. <laughs> you see what I mean? But one must not sell him too short, and uh, in the second discourse, there is an extremely cagey view of uh, good reciprocity, which is assumed, you know, man, natural man is good, but ultimately it's never tested. Maybe the scariness of the present situation is precisely that uh, uh, no one, no group, no uh, political force, no religious force, no philosophy has the universal power, you know, that could... uh, impose itself upon such belligerents as the Serbs and the Croats and the Bosnians. So I think the real fear is that we're going to have live in a world which will have no more transcendence, social transcendence in the sense of Durkai. You see what I mean? Where there will be no power able to intimidate through symbols, you know, anything. And uh, I think that the the people who compare this with the First World War, they are totally wrong. 
but people are afraid of seeing all these small wars breaking out all over the place, you know, group against group. I think the fact that the Czechs and the Slovaks, even if they divided peacefully, did divide, is what scares people. You know, it's some kind of complete fragmentation of the, <coughs> of the world, of part of Eurasia, you see. And it's difficult to see who would have the prestige, you know, to... And there the main problem is the uh, independence of religious and political power. There were periods in Christian history in which there was a very powerful current in favor of making the two one, you know, the Crusades and so forth. But there were always people like Dante, powerful voices on the other side, saying that's not the way to do. Political power should be separate from religious power. In Islam, there probably were two, I don't know, but very few and much less important. And it's the other viewpoint that carried the day. Thank you very much for If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.